Hadley. And our guest today is Catherine Howe, the author of a true account, Hannah Massery's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. Catherine is a New York Times bestselling and award-winning historian and novelist. Her other recent books include Astor, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune, co-authored with Anderson Cooper, and her edited volume, The Penguin Book of Pirates, is forthcoming from Penguin Classics on April 30th of 2024. Catherine lives and sails in New England with her family, where she is at work on her next novel. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> well, we're excited to have you. Did I say the title correctly? Yes, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. I'm a bit notorious for having long-winded titles. <laughs> I can see. So this was this was really a fun book. So it's what's called, what's referred to as a dual narrative um, historical novel. Mm-hmm. which means that there's two storylines going on and they're both set in the past. That's right. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the time periods and why you chose? I mean, the one is kind of obvious. If you're going to write about a female pirate, there's probably mm-hmm. a fairly limited time period you can write about. Mm-hmm. But the other one, what, what made you choose that storyline? Sure. Well, the action in A True Account opens in summer of 1726 in Boston, Massachusetts, when a young girl named Hannah Missouri, whose age we never quite figure out, we um, we were led to conclude that she's somewhere in her late teens. She has been bound out to service at a waterfront tavern since she was a small child. And the waterfront tavern is called Ship Tavern, and it was a real place that existed in Boston in the 1720s. And at that time, it was already almost 100 years old. And Hannah, through a series of circumstances, it witnesses the hanging of a pirate named William Fly. And this is something that really did happen in Boston in July of 1726. And I can talk about William Fly in a little bit if you would like me to. Um, But Hannah watches William Fly be hanged for piracy with a couple of his Confederates. And then she gets caught up in some intrigue that is connected to William Fly, and she winds up having to flee for her life. So Hannah disguises herself as a cabin boy and ships out on a fruit packet, or what she thinks is a fruit packet bound for the Azores. And instead, she finds that she's delivered herself into the hands of the notorious pirate Ned Lowe, who was active out of Boston for a time in the 1720s. And for the first part of the book, it's, it feels like we're just following along on Hannah's adventure, where it's first person and we're just in the action with her. And then about 40 pages in, we discover that instead, we've actually been reading over someone's shoulder. And we're reading over the shoulder of a Radcliffe professor named Marion Beresford in 1929. And Marion Beresford has an undergraduate named Kay Lonergan who has found a manuscript called True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself, and has brought it to her professor because she thinks that it's it's real and that there's a secret buried in uh, in Hannah's account, Hannah's true account, that will lead them to buried treasure. And that was, yeah, I remember, you know, as I was reading and I come to that and like, 
Oh, I wasn't expecting this. <laughs> I know. There are a few readers who've been like, that was really abrupt and it was confusing, but it's supposed to be abrupt and confusing because all of a sudden, you know, and, and in this book, I break one of the kind of cardinal rules of narrative fiction where um, you're really not supposed to go between first person and third person. And when we're in Hannah's part of the story, we're in first person. And then when we're in Marion's part of the story, we're in close third. Um, which is how you can kind of tell for sure where you are at any given moment. Good in time. point. Good point. And why did you decide that that was the way to frame this story? Um, I find I've, I've done a couple of different novels at this point, and I like to have a couple of timelines, partly because when talking about periods of history that are pretty remote, culturally or intellectually or religiously, um, in a way I find it useful to have characters in the book who can kind of explain the more remote period of time. Um, But at the same time, I, one of the big themes in a true account is about the ways that women make themselves appear what people expect them to be in order to guarantee a degree of safety or autonomy for themselves. And so as it, as the story unfolds, obviously Hannah is having to perform a certain kind of, role in order to make herself safe within this pirate crew that she has shipped out with. And at the same time, we learn that Marion, as uh, we discover that Marion is a gay woman living in 1929, around 1930. That was a time period when gender presentation and sexuality were actually heavily policed. And so Marion herself is no stranger to having to control the way she appears to other people in order to guarantee her own safety. And so in some respect, it's about Marion reading in Hannah the possibility of a different way of being. Oh, that's that's a great a great explanation of it. Mm-hmm. Now, how I mean, have you've written about pirates before? Well, so most of the, if people have read my work before, they probably mostly associate me with um, witches. I've written a couple of histories of, like, my first novel was The Physic Book of Deliverance Stain, which came out in 2009, and which is a story that grew out of the thought experiment, what if one of the Salem witches were the real thing, but not the way we think of them, pointy hats, etc. What if she was real the way the colonists actually believed witches to be? And um, and I have, believe it or not, actually written a pirate novel before, but it was a failed pirate novel. <laughs> I wrote uh, a few years ago. If you if you look, yeah, if you look at my uh, if you look at my publication record, you'll see that I have published every like roughly every two years, except there's a gap from 2015 to 2019. And the missing book in that gap is my non-published um, Gulf Coast pirate novel, which I was trying to write. I'm originally from. Texas. I'm from the Gulf Coast region of Texas. And so I had wanted to write a wonderful, great, sprawling adventure, like unexpected historical Texas novel. And I was trying to do too much with it. There are too many themes. There are too many characters. There are too many timelines. And it's a whole mess. And so I ended up abandoning that book, but I had not, I found that I wasn't finished (laughs) thinking about pirates. Okay, well, you're kind of smiling as you're talking about this but um, I mean, I can hear it in your voice, but I have a feeling you weren't smiling then. So <laughs> it was tough. It was tough. It's tough to put it's tough to put a project down that means a lot to you. I mean, I spent many years on that book. I spent three or four years on that book. I was so deep in the weeds on that book that I actually found the only extant 
Dictionary of Karankawa to English, which was noted down by an Anglo girl who learned a few words of Karankawa. That was the Karankawa were an indigenous tribe of people who lived in this very narrow strip of the Gulf Coast where I was setting this story. Um, and so the, the only like surviving example of Karankawa language that was written down in the 19th century was written by this girl who was a, a young Anglo girl who was living in the landscape at that time. And I found the book that she published and was reading up words in Karankawa. Like that, I was I was deep in the weeds. It was tough. Putting wow. it down was tough. Wow, I yeah. bet. And and there wasn't like any way you could have. No, it's it is unfortunately <laughs> a fatally flawed book. I mean, there are elements of it that I that I still love and I still kind of think about. Um, and I haven't abandoned the idea of writing something set in that place and in that time, but it's going to have to be a different story. I'm just hoping you get to use at least some <laughs> some of the Karankawa, yeah. yeah, and some of the research and some of. The, I mean, I, the, I didn't even know the there were. The word for a dwelling was a back. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know there were pirates in the Gulf Coast. Yes, in fact, there were. Well, interestingly, there, when you when the Penguin Book of Pirates, which comes out in um, in April, is a collection of primary sources, and it's basically like if you came up to me and said, Catherine, what are some of the coolest primary sources about piracy I could possibly find? And a lot of the selections are actually from the early part of the 19th century. And it's, it's an uncomfortable truism, but, you know, there was a window of time when um, slavery was legal in the United States, but the importation of enslaved people was not. And so there was a very strong incentive to raid Spanish shipping for cargoes of enslaved people and then trying to launder them into the United States. Um, and that is what some pirates that were active in the Gulf Coast region in the early part of the 19th century were doing. Oh. In fact, one thing that I think is interesting to think about in thinking about piracy is that we have this, we have a very romantic picture of pirates um, because in some respect they represent um total freedom. They're, they're the greatest condition of freedom that is available in a, a time period that is otherwise very rigidly controlled by class and economics. And, and yet, golden age piracy was absolutely bent on and contingent upon and depended upon the most radical condition of human unfreedom, which was the transatlantic slave trade. Um, you can't really talk about the one historically without talking about the other and the amount of money involved in both. And, and that's why no, there's a, we don't there's think a, about that. <laughs> no, we don't. And that's why. So there are a couple. There are a couple of ways that a true account um, will complicate our romantic, maybe cinematic infused picture of what piracy was like. In one way, um, for instance, most pirate crews were actually multi-ethnic. Um, if you watch Pirates of the Caribbean, that is not the picture that you would get of a pirate crew. But um, you would have people who were whose lingua franca was French, or who who were from West Africa, or who were from, you know, Spanish holdings in in the Caribbean, or things like that. There are a few examples of self-liberating people who ended up joining pirate crews. And so I have a character in a true account who's a major character who is a self-liberating person. And we never really get much of his backstory, partly because he doesn't want to talk about it. He chooses not to talk about it. He's cast his old name aside and taken a new name for himself, as so many pirates did. Um, and so, 
And of course, there are a few historical examples of women disguising themselves as men and going pirating. Um, the most famous examples are Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, who were two working class women. Um, Anne Bonny was born in Cork, Ireland, if I'm not mistaken, and then lived in the Carolinas for many years. And uh, they both were in disguise in the same pirate crew that was raiding off of Port Royal, Jamaica. And they were both captured and they were going to hang. And and Bonnie, they, although they, they pleaded their bellies, which is to say that they claimed that they were pregnant and so they couldn't be put to death. Um, because usually if a pregnant woman was condemned to die, this happened in the witch trials too, um, they would wait for her to deliver the baby before they would hang her. Isn't that thoughtful? Oh, wow. And so, yeah, and so Anne Bonny had been the, the lover of the captain of this pirate crew that they were tangled up in. His name was Calico Jack Rackham. And there's a story <laughs> that, could, that could, I know, it's a great name. Yes. There's a story that could be apocryphal that holds that... Um, that Calico Jack was taken to see Anne Bonny in prison the night before he was going to hang and that he was feeling sorry for himself and that Anne Bonny said she was sorry to see it, but if he'd only fought like a man, he wouldn't have had to die like a dog. <laughs> so there's, I feel like our, our picture of Golden Age piracy is, um, you know, tends to be kind of monolithic and the truth of the matter in Golden Age piracy is much more complex and I think much more interesting. And I explore some of those things in a true account. Are there any examples of women, female pirates, who were not disguised as men? Who Not that I can point to, although there there's a woman named Grace O'Malley who is sometimes called a pirate queen who was not in disguise. She, But I feel like calling her a pirate is a little bit of a misnomer. She was more like a warlord, like a seagoing warlord. She, um, you know, kind of controlled a family dynasty that, that um, got tribute from people who wanted to fish in the waters off of the land that they controlled. Um, and there's another example in um, the South China Sea at the very beginning of the 19th century. There was kind of a sort of a situation of, of anarchy on the seas in the South China Sea after the falling apart of the, oh gosh, the leadership of Vietnam kind of had fallen apart. And so there was some, there was some like, a power vacuum essentially in the South China Sea and a confederacy of pirates sprang up and there was a woman, John Yi Sao, who was um, married to a guy who was also part of this confederacy. And she ended up being the head of one of these kind of loosely organized pirate fleets. But again, it's different from the way that we talk about it's a little bit different insofar as it's more like a like an ocean going warlord than it is a pirate the way that we think of a pirate today. You know, it's different from like a William Fly who leads a mutiny and then seizes control of the ship and goes raiding out of his own interests. Well, for any woman to have that amount of kind of authority and power in mm-hmm. any, you know, on sea or on land, they must have mm-hmm. been. You know, it's just amazing to me that, and and throughout history, you see that, you see queens, mm-hmm. and you see, you know, women who rise up to be, to really rule, even sometimes mm-hmm. without the bloodlines. You know, it's, it's <laughs> totally on their own power. Yeah. Well, I think I mean the the yeah. I feel like one of the things that I 
enjoy thinking about is the the early modern period. You know, the golden age of piracy, as we think of it, roughly stretches from around the 17, sorry, 1650s to about 1726. So the story in a true account takes place right at the end of what we have thought of as the golden age of piracy. And that was a time period when your average person had really next to no choice in their life. It was a time of enslavement. It was a time of impressment. It was a time of indenture. You know, it was a time when, with the very small exception of people at the very top of the economic pyramid, you know, choice was simply not available. And one of the reasons that pirates, I think, hold our imagination so much is because it is an example of mostly men kind of throwing off the shackles of economic constraint that have been forced upon them and doing so at risk of their lives. So some historians have actually pointed to the organization of pirate ships, and we see this in the organization of the pirate ship that Hannah is on in a true account, um, was actually kind of proto-democratic. The captain would be chosen by popular acclaim. They would all sign their names to a list of articles, which is to say a list of like agreements that they swore to to spell out their obligations to each other and to kind of assure good governance and what could otherwise be kind of an anarchic situation because you can't actually make a ship go without organization. Um, and you certainly can't be an effective sea raider without internal organization. And so there are some historians who've argued that, um, that piracy represents the first flowering of a democratic impulse. Um, that might be overselling the point, but it also might not be. <laughs> well, that's kind of cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is cool. Yeah. I, I wondered as I was reading that, you know, about the kind of the election that they had, how historically accurate mm-hmm. that is. So it wasn't. That's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> but not always. What not, do you mean not always? I mean, not in every, not every pirate ship did that. Uh, pretty much every pirate ship. Did pretty that, much yeah. every pirate ship. Okay. Otherwise, okay. you couldn't get the ship to go. Yeah. yeah. So in the articles, in the articles, they explained, they they outlined who had what job essentially. Okay. So let's take William Fly for example. So William Fly was a was a mariner. He was on a ship called the Elizabeth that was, um, and he and his confederates were subject to what they called hard usage, which is to say that the guy, the sailing master in charge of their ship, was treating them badly. Badly enough that they finally couldn't take it anymore. They got armed themselves. They attacked him and attacked some of the first officers. They threw them overboard and seized control of the ship. They renamed it the Fame's Revenge. And then William Fly, because he'd led the mutiny, was made the captain by popular acclaim. And so then they went raiding off of Cape Hatteras. And that he, you know, people in in his crew had different jobs. You know, this guy, guy who was too drunk to really be useful in, uh, in fighting was made the cook, um, <laughs> you know, but, but you do have to have some kind of internal organization in order to keep a, a, you know, golden age of piracy sailing vessel functioning. But the other thing that William Fly ran into was the skill set needed to make a ship go is one skill set, but the skill set to navigate is actually a totally different skill set. And so William Fly needed a guy who could navigate so that they knew where they were going. And so they actually kidnapped a fisherman to serve as their pilot. And they were they were trying to make the fisherman navigate them to um, Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off the southern kind of coast of Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And the fisherman didn't really fancy being kidnapped by pirates. And so he tricked them. 
he navigated them instead to Boston, which if anyone knows the east coast of the United States at all, going from Martha's Vineyard, which is on the south coast of Cape Cod, all the way outside Cape Cod and then all the way in Massachusetts Bay to Boston, it's actually pretty far out of their way. Um, like but they the were fishermen, really stupid? <laughs> they weren't stupid. They just It was just like pretty – I'm kind of impressed that, that the fisherman was able to get away with it. That's all I'm saying. I mean, it would have taken like – like a couple extra days or oh, maybe wow. a day depending okay. on the weather. Okay. Yeah, like it's okay. a while. Yeah. It's a while. Maybe maybe just one day, but long, you know, not short. Not an hour. Um and so and but he but the fisherman did this because he knew that there was increasing kind of um pressure to suppress piracy because of the threats that it posed to maritime trade. So it was in Massachusetts Bay's and England's interest to crush piracy. So they come in outside of Boston and are quickly waylaid and the pirates are captured. The fisherman is set free and then the pirates are subject to a public trial and then a public hanging, which seems like it would be horrifying enough. Um, But the scene of the hanging of William Fly that happens in a true account is actually based on primary sources and based on historical record. And one thing that William Fly does is he is completely unrepentant. Um, a group of ministers are wanting them to to apologize and kind of humble themselves before God and Massachusetts Bay. And William Fly won't do it. In fact, when he gets up on the scaffolding, he looks at the noose and he says, this all really happened. He says to the hangman, don't you know your trade? And he unties the noose and then reties it better because he's a sailor and then puts it around his own neck. <laughs> and so because authority want, it was so important to try to dissuade people from taking this kind of risk and disrupting maritime trade to this degree. Um, after William Fly was hanged, his body was gibbeted. And that means to have your body hung in chains in a public place and left to rot. And so William Fly's body was gibbeted on a rock in Boston Harbor called Nix's Mate, where any ship coming in and out of Boston Harbor would have been able to see it, which is grotesque, um, but also gives you a sense of how actually threatening piracy was to the economics of colonial North America in the 1720s. Well, I was going to ask, you said the golden age of piracy ended in 1726. How how can you be so specific about it? I know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there were a couple of ways of trying to bring, make piracy less threatening. And in a few, at at various points, um, the, the British sovereign or sometimes the Spanish sovereign, whoever was in charge at that time, would issue a blanket pardon to any pirate. It was basically like, okay, if you guys stop doing this, if you cut it out, we will not hang you. Everything will be fine. Just stop raiding, please. Um, and in a, in a few, in a few hilarious instances, because of course it's in the interest, but you know, during this period, there's, you know, wars and tensions between Spain and Portugal and Britain and France. And so at certain points, um, and this is explored in the Penguin Book of Pirates, at certain points, like one guy will be um, wanted for death by Spain and another, and the same guy will be given a knighthood by England because he's being <laughs> so effective at what he's doing, um, which is kind of funny. So 1726, there's a, there's a, a blanket pardon that's issued. And also it's, it's a time period where like a few things start to change. There are fewer like 
the economics of the Spanish colonies is starting to change a little bit. There's there's just sort of a, a shift that happens in maritime trade that makes piracy less um, less of a threat by the time we get into the 1730s. But of course, there is lawlessness on on the waters pretty much always. It just has moments when it's really in full flower and moments when it's not. So the next big full flower of lawlessness in, um, in piracy, the way we would recognize it as such, is um, the beginning of the 19th century. And of course, there's still piracy happening today. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's piracy that's happening today. In fact, arguably, I've been reading about the, the Houthi uh, rating of oil shipping through the Suez Canal. Like right, as we're speaking right now, um, they've stopped sending oil tankers through the Suez Canal because um, groups of Houthi raiders backed by Iran are interfering with maritime trade so much. And in effect, that is the same kind of structure. That's like state-sanctioned piracy, effectively. And um, it's not that different from what you saw um, in the Tripoli pirates in the early part of the 19th century, or even in the South China Sea in the 19th century. Um, so what we're seeing is a moment of like state-sanctioned like war- warlords um, interrupting maritime trade. Now, a few years ago, we heard a lot about Somali pirates. Is that still happening? Yeah. Um, I believe so. I'm I'm less informed on what the current state of Somali piracy is, but yes, it was the same kind of thing. And those those were kind of individual people who were backed by, uh, you know, if anyone who saw Captain Phillips, they they understand the economics of how that was working. But yeah, they were backed by warlords. So when you um, decided to write this book about female pirates, Mm-hmm. Basing a little bit on some real life inspiration, I understand. From, Here and there, yes. But from yeah, your own there's, family there's... history? <laughs> yeah, so the name, Hannah Missouri's name, I borrowed her name from a real woman who was not herself a pirate, but who what, did have kind of an interesting maritime experience. So a few years ago, um, I got the great shipment of, of stuff from my parents when my parents downsized. I don't know if this is a universe. I don't know if this is a universal phenomenon, but one day the great shipment of stuff arrived. And uh and so I this one object that I found while going through this stuff was um a punch bowl with a square rigged ship painted on the side. I was like, Wow, that's beautiful. I wonder what the story is behind it. And I in about an afternoon of research I discovered the punch bowl had been given to a like great, I don't know how many greats ago, uncle. Um, when he became the captain of a clipper ship in the 1850s. And his name was Edward Howe, and he was named the captain of a clipper sort of toward the end of the age of sail. So the age of sail, as opposed to the golden age of piracy, the age of sail ended in 1868. And you can pinpoint that moment because that was when the Suez, can- that was when the Suez Canal opened. And so you didn't need, you didn't need super fast clippers to uh, to trade around the world because you could take a shortcut through the Suez Canal so you could have slower but bigger steamships. And so that was kind of the end of like the major sailing days um, because the Suez Canal opened. But this guy um, got his commission to be the captain of a clipper ship and then and he got married. He married a woman named Hannah Missouri who lived across the street. And they, they got married in 1853. In 1860, I think it was 65, they headed out in a clipper called the Ellen Southard with a load of locomotives because it was a time period when um, they hadn't yet connected the railroads on the East Coast and the railroads on the West Coast. 
so they needed railroad cars on the West Coast. So they had a, a cargo of locomotives. And they left Massachusetts, and it took them for, bound for California. And it took them 207 days to get to California. And of that 207 days, they spent something like 50 of them just trying to get around the horn. So first of all, I'm reading this like imagining Hannah Missouri was in her early 30s because it wasn't all that unusual for a captain, a clipper ship captain, to have his wife come along. She came along on a voyage with him. So she's on this clipper. She is sailing around the horn, like hard upwind sailing in the southern ocean around the horn with a load of locomotives. Unbelievable. Already I'm kind of mind blown by that. And then they drop everything off in California. And they go down to Sydney to pick up some passengers. They carry those passengers. I'm not sure if they took something from California to Sydney. They probably did. Then they took passengers from Sydney up to Hong Kong. And then in Hong Kong, they picked up a load of laborers who were going to go work in California. So a load of passengers, human cargo. And as they're crossing the Pacific, Edward gets sick and dies, leaving Hannah, 33 years old, in charge of the ship. And then shortly thereafter, uh, they start to run low on fresh water. And the crew and the passengers stage a mutiny. And Hannah holds them off with a pistol and signals her distress by hanging the ship's flag upside down off the stern until they are waylaid off of Santa Cruz. And she is like, the, the ship is kind of drifting and she is rescued um, off of Santa Cruz. So all, so all of this, I'm already pretty impressed. But then after that, she sued for Edward's percentage ownership of the proceeds of this voyage and then takes the money, goes back to this little town in Massachusetts that she's from and buys herself a house. And then she remarries a dentist and lives quietly and dies in 1910. <laughs> and so I was reading about this and I loved everything about it so much. I wasn't sure if it could really be a novel by itself. But I also loved thinking about this, like, imagine walking down the street of Beverly, Massachusetts in 1909 and passing a little old tough Yankee lady with, like, her market basket, having no idea that she's been around the horn <laughs> and put down a mutiny. And it's just kind of amazing. And so I was like, wow, you are so tough and, and incredible. And I'm just going to take your name and give it to this pirate because somebody needs to know how tough and amazing you were. So when they, like, to go from... The East Coast to California, they went the whole way around Down, the world, or they went around, around the Horn, around South America, around Horn or Africa, around Horn? South Cape Horn, Cape Horn, Cape Horn, South America, South America, okay, Cape Horn, okay. South America, yeah, because there's no there's no Panama Canal yet, right, right. But when you were talking mm -hmm. about Sydney and Hong Kong, I thought maybe they went oh I know the other direction. No, they but... went they went yeah they went around the Horn into the Pacific to California first. Okay, then, uh, gotcha, gotcha, yeah. But wow. that is, you're right. That's almost, that's almost a circumnavigation. It's pretty yeah, great. It's pretty yeah. astonishing. Yeah, it sure is. Wow. Mm -hmm. So the, um, let's talk about some of your other books just briefly. So mm -hmm. you have the true account of Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates written by herself. And you have the Penguin Book mm -hmm. of Pirates coming out. You have the Penguin mm -hmm. Book of Witches. Is that one yes. already out? That came out about almost 10 years ago. Okay. And then mm -hmm. you have, um, looks like two books you've written with Anderson Cooper. How did those come That's about? That's right. 
Yeah. Um, so Anderson has we we together we wrote Vanderbilt: The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty, which came out in 2021. And then this last autumn we released. Um, so in autumn 2023 we released Aster: The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune. And that came about because, uh, you know, I was approached about helping out with it because Anderson had written a memoir before of his time as a foreign correspondent, and he had published a collection of kind of letters and reminiscences between himself and his mother called The Rainbow Comes and Goes. And I think at this point, everyone knows his mother was Gloria Vanderbilt. And so the way it was brought to me was that he wanted to do kind of a history of the Vanderbilt family, but writing a history book is as I say, it's like navigation, a particular skill set. <laughs> and so they wanted to they wanted to find someone who had some history chops and who had some experience writing for a popular audience. And so um, I proposed a way that I thought that that book could work. And um, it one of the things that was nice is that we we were very interested by many of the same kinds of things. You know, we were much more interested in stories of individual people caught up in extraordinary circumstances than we were in, say, you know, a business history of the railroads, for instance, which would be another way you could have looked at right. the Vanderbilt dynasty. And um, and we had such a good time writing the Vanderbilt book, which is the Vanderbilt book is sort of an episodic one where we hang different chapters on a particular event and kind of particular characters. And we had such a nice time with that book that we thought it would be fun to to look at the Astors because the Vanderbilts, when they joined Gilded Age Society, were considered new money and terribly nouveau riche. <laughs> um, and, then, and the person who kind of was the gatekeeper of Gilded Age Society, as anyone who's watching HBO's Gilded Age knows already, was Caroline Astor. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about Caroline Astor while writing the Vanderbilt book. And so we thought it would be fascinating to look at, you know, an old money uh, Gilded Age family fortune. And so we we took a similar kind of idiosyncratic approach to the Astors, where we looked both at the family, but also a bit at what the word Astor came to mean to different people, because they were so um, active in like hotels, the Waldorf Astoria, in um, exploration, like the founding of Astoria, Oregon, um, and things like that, that we we had some fun looking at the way that Aster came to be kind of decoupled from the family and came to be a signifier of class or society or other things. So it's a really fun book. I'm we're very proud of it. Oh, interesting. So mm-hmm. the now your other books you started with the uh, the physique book of Deliverance Dane, which is the one that mm-hmm. you're talking about um, about the witch is someone actually being a witch. And yes. um, then the appearance, the appearance of Annie Van Sinderen, which that was, was my fourth book. That was your fourth book. OK, mm-hmm. so yeah. so there are a couple different books. So in order there, the physics book of Deliverance Dane is my very first novel, which is a Salem story. The second book is The House of Velvet and Glass, which was uh, which came out. It's a Titanic story, but it's also kind of about spiritualism and seances in the very beginning of the progressive era. And um, it came out for the Titanic centennial, so in 2012. And then my third book was Conversion, which is a young adult novel, which looked at Salem from the afflicted girl's perspective. And that came out in 2014, the same year as the Penguin Book of Witches, which is a primary source reader about witchcraft in um, England and North America from the 1500s until the 1700s. 
And then The Appearance of Annie Van Sinderen is definitely my weirdest book. It is a ghost story that never uses the word ghost that's set in New York City, um, mostly in the present, but um, with some kind of flashbacks to the 1820s. So it's kind of engaging, you know, with the legacy of like Sleepy Hollow era, early 19th century ghost stories. And then I have The Daughters of Temperance Hobbs, which was in 2019, which uh, is a follow-up to the Physic Book of Deliverance Dane, although you can read it by, the, by itself. And, uh, and then the two books with Anderson, uh, Vanderbilt and Astor, and then A True Account this year, and The Penguin Book of Pirates in the spring. And now, that brings us up to 10. I think now, that's everybody. Yeah. Now, how did you um, become a historian in the first place? And did you always so know was, that you would use that interest to write historical novels? I did not know that. <laughs> I, uh, I started, I, so as an undergraduate, I studied philosophy and art history, and then I worked in art museums. And then I went to graduate school for American studies, which is like an interdisciplinary history degree. Um, and in my case, I was working on American visual culture, which is kind of like interdisciplinary history and art history in a way. I was interested in visual culture and in material culture, which is the, the history of stuff and objects and what objects can tell us about culture and values and, and moments in time. And I was in a doctoral program and I thought I was going to be an academic. And instead, I just hit a snag with my, my dissertation and I got so involved thinking about the idea for my very first novel, The Physic Book of Deliverance Dane, because I felt like I hadn't seen a Salem story that took seriously the worldview of Puritans. I felt like all the stories of Salem that we see are either skeptical accounts that treat people living in the past like they're superstitious idiots, like in the Crucible, or they were really cute, like Harry Potter. And at no point did I feel like there was a story that was kind of a magical realist story that took seriously the worldview that having a witch trial is a rational thing to do. <laughs> Good point. Well, which it, because it was, because in the 17th century, it was a rational thing to do. So um, that was kind of the, the impetus. And I was very fortunate that that book pu published and was successful enough that I found myself in a new career, which was really exciting. Wow. And you never look back. Mm -mm. Nope. <laughs> now, have you done any teaching as well? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, listen, why don't you read a little bit from a true account for us? I would love to. Let me put myself on speaker. All right. Hold on one second. And if you're just tuning in, this is Writer's Voices, and Catherine Howe is going to read from a true account, Hannah Massery's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. Okay. I'm going to start with the uh, epigraph in the book. In an honest service, there's thin commons, low wages, and hard labor. In this, plenty and satiety, pleasure and ease, liberty and power, when all the hazard that is run for it at worst is only a sour look or two at choking. No, a merry life and a short one shall be my motto. Captain Bartholomew Roberts. Chapter 1, Boston, June 1726. I don't know what made me determined to go to the hangings. I'd always made a point of avoiding them. I resisted the entreaties of my friends who wanted to be in amongst the throngs of onlookers 
ears pricked for the last words and the pious advice of the soon-to-be-damned. Of course, I'd always been curious. You cannot help but wonder about the fate of one condemned, to see his carriage toward the crowd and himself, to feel the swelling cheers and cries of all the townsfolk, to hear the crack of the felon's neck snapped like a chicken. I wondered if their eyes were open or closed when their moment came. What happened in the instant in between being a living, breathing creature, trembling with needs and wants and fears, and being an empty sack of flesh and bone? Is it the same for an old woman alone in her bed with the covers pulled up tight as it is for a man mounting the scaffold before God and everyone? Does an unearthly light of heaven attain shine upon the greasy strings of their hair if they've confessed and repented? Everyone repents at the end, or so I've been told. I'd heard the moment of public death described often enough, usually by someone with a hand around a glass, but I'd always been of too delicate a nature to see for myself. I didn't like to drown kittens or stomp trembled whiskered mice, and as often as not found a way to avoid such grim chores on the occasion that the Tomlinson chose to impose them on me. I even crossed the street from dogs lying dead in the gutter. But something about William Fly was different. I made up my mind that I would go. Thank you. Now, as you're, you're reading, or as I was reading this, I wondered about the kind of the um, language that you use particularly. Well, you know, the whole thing that's written from her point of view, how mm-hmm. accurate is it in terms of how someone at that time would have been speaking or writing? I do my best to make it as accurate as I can. Um, you know, there's, there's, uh, you spend enough time in the primary sources and you can start to get a sense of kind of how people talked. Um, partly because, you know, people are people, you know, they don't necessarily speak in this really kind of formal and, and stilted way. Um, but one of the fun things that, you know, when, when you go through the edits on a book like this, you, you write the book and then you go through edits with your editor and then you go through copy edits and then you go through what's called first pass pages, which is when they start to typeset the book and it's your last chance to change anything. And it's usually at first pass pages that I start to get really paranoid about um, anachronisms. Oh. And so I spend <laughs> a lot of time, I spend a lot of time uh, looking up things in the Oxford English Dictionary to make sure that a word was actually in, in um, you know, in currency at a time. So there was a, like, for instance, there was a word that I changed. Hannah works in a tavern and she is summoned by a guy and I wanted to describe him as a drunk. And the word I first picked for him was a rummy. And I thought, rummy, that might not be like right. So I checked and sure enough, rummy is a 19th century word. So I had to get rid of rummy. And so I replaced it. I replaced it with sot and drunkard. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's funny is I feel like the insults that would be deployed in this time period don't really sound sufficiently insulting to us, but I have to use them anyway. So like rogue or uh, or rascal, (laughs) Um, you know, over time, over time, language pretty insulting, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's also some uh, someone has noticed that in Anna's part of the story, some of the curses are blocked out. Yes. And the reason for that is because it's meant to imitate the sensation of actually reading an 18th century book. If you read an 18th century book, um, instances of 
the Lord's name being taken in vain, for instance, are blocked out or anything that's bad language. And oftentimes people's names are blocked out um, out of, I don't know, out of an excess of caution or, or something like that. And so um, that was kind of my one nod to the fact that we're supposed to be reading. Hannah's story is actually supposed to be a book within a book. It's supposed to be a primary source that we're reading along with the character in the 20th century. So by blacked out, like the any curse word, you have the first letter the, and the last and the letter. La- and, with, and the last letter. Yeah, so you can tell that, that she's yeah. saying motherless whore, but it doesn't actually have the word whore in it. Yeah, yeah. And it took me a little while to figure out um, what B dash D was, but I got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's, it's funny. A few a few readers are like, oh, why would she block that out? I feel like Hannah would have just said it. I'm like, obviously, <laughs> Hannah would have just said it. But you're not actually listening to Hannah say it. You're actually reading it. Um, and, and I was trying to, I was trying to, uh, you know, create the sensation of reading an 18th century text. Although sometimes 18th century text can be a little bit challenging to read. Yeah, particularly if it was handwritten, <laughs> which it yeah. often was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. And now most kids aren't learning to read cursive at all. Which is terrible. So, I'm a big believer in cursive, yeah, but so, I'm also such a dork that I took <laughs> I took paleography class in high school uh, or not high school, in college, in graduate school. I love paleography. So what? But how are historians? I mean, the historians obviously are going to have to learn it, or you're not yeah, going to be able to read those be, original sources. It's going to be tricky. It's yeah. going to be tricky. Although, I mean, there's there's I'm sure maybe we'll get to a point where we won't have to read it ourselves because AI will read oh, it for us. Well, there is that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> have you do you use AI at all in your work? I don't. I don't. I'm I'm afraid of technology. I'm a luddite. Mm. Um, but my my husband is a historian and he's actually gotten very adept at using AI because um, he uses a lot of statistics in his work and um for like computer programming things, there's many things he's been able to do that make his work a lot more efficient. Um, I'm very impressed with how adaptable he is to technology. Wow. So now another thing that you have to get right, of course, would be the um, maritime language and also how they were sailing the ship, how they were navigating. So how do you know all of this? (laughs) <laughs> I'm a sailor. <laughs> it's my only hobby. Um, I have one hobby. I can't cook. I can't knit. I don't do crafts. All I do is sail boats. Um, but, but of course, even sailing a modern sailboat is actually quite different from sailing like a, you know, fore and after schooner. Um, so I did do, you know, some, research on it. However, I tried to also keep it from getting too technical because I think that if you get really bogged down in a lot of it, um, that can get kind of tiresome to read. And so um, Hannah, fortunately, Hannah is naive when she joins the crew. She doesn't know anything. And so she's not like filling you up with a lot of nautical jargon. Um, there's a lot of her being confused and not really understanding you know, what she's looking at or what, what she's doing is supposed to accomplish. Um, so I went to it from a standpoint of a certain degree of familiarity with like what it feels like to be on a sailing vessel for a while um, and, you know, what would be challenging about it or what would be exciting about it um, without going into like exhaustive, like Patrick O'Brien levels of detail. 
Yeah, that was one one thing that I wondered about is, you know, in I mean, she's disguising herself as a cabin boy and first mm-hmm. of all, you know, no none of these men know know although maybe at least one does eventually that she's a girl. Well, <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah. also the fact that she knows nothing about yeah. a ship wouldn't that have kind of wouldn't they have found her out because of her lack of experience? Not necessarily. I mean, like all ships had boys on board. Um, this was during this time period, and that's true whether it was in the the Navy or the Merchant Marine or you know certainly enslaved or enslaved people. There were children. You know, every ship had had boys on board, um, and their jobs were usually just to kind of fetch and carry, and generally like do whatever it is that they were told. And so, in fact, there's a kind of one of the better known pirate ships that's actually been discovered and excavated is the Wida or the Wida, um, which belonged to a pirate named Black Sam Bellamy. It had been a ship for transporting enslaved people. Um, it was captured in Bermuda and then it was wrecked off of Cape Cod. And over the course of its checkered career in piracy from the Carolinas north, um, at one point, they seized a ship, and a boy in the in the among the passengers insisted on joining the pirate crew, and so he joined the pirate crew, and um, and then he went down with the ship when everybody else was lost, when the widow was wrecked, and some years ago there was an article in the Boston Globe saying that in the course of continuing excavations on the widow, they had found a boy's leather shoe, with a white stocking and a piece of tibia inside. Oh wow. And so, yeah, so there, like, there's, there's, there's your proof that there were boys on pirate ships. Well, that, yeah, that there were boys, but the fact mm-hmm. that she wasn't who she said she was, she was pretending to be this boy who would have had mm-hmm. experience on a ship where she didn't have any. That's what I, um. Possibly, but not, but not necessarily. I okay. mean, you know, okay. many boys would, would, would start out being pretty ignorant and dumb and useless. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, she quickly learned her way around and became valuable. She did. And one of the reasons she, she was so valuable was she had good mm-hmm. eyesight. Right. Yeah, she had she's far sighted. That's the only trait that Hannah and I have in common. I'm far sighted in my <laughs> eyes. Um but there there's actually I mean, I don't blame you if you're a skeptic. There's a there's a moment in the book where uh Marion is debating with Kay whether or not it would have been feasible for Hannah to actually conceal her her sex from right. from the, from the crewmates, and you know I lay out the case for how it could have worked, um, but a reader is going to have to decide if they if they think she could have actually gotten away with it. And there are actual historical cases of young women becoming soldiers. There are. And I mean, other there are, other there are cases of yeah. 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 Well, and also it's the way that I talk about it in the book, and you know, this is my argument put in Marion's voice, but it's that you know think about the ways. Think about first living in a moment in time when there isn't, it isn't like your gendered clothing choices aren't really subject to choice or debate. So like you wouldn't look at someone dressed in a certain way as one particular gender and think it could go one way or the other. You would just assume. So there's, there's that. But there's also the fact, there's also the fact that Hannah is, um, is impoverished. She has been malnourished. You know, she would have a, a very different body from what we'd expect a 17-year-old girl to look like today who's had plenty to eat. 
um, you know, she would be, she could be so skinny that she had not even begun to menstruate yet. Right. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't actually that unusual for someone in their late teens to have not begun to menstruate yeah. yet in the 1720s. And girls didn't have short hair at all. Well, Hannah doesn't, Hannah doesn't have short hair in the story, but, um, yeah. but, but also many people in, in the seafaring world and the maritime world didn't have short hair. Uh, like most people, I think, in the 18th century, unless they would have short hair if they wore it under a wig, but, you know, okay. most people have longer hair. Okay. All right. So yeah. um, what is your next book about? Well, the one that's coming out in the in the spring is um, the Penguin Book of Pirates. And so I'm looking forward to talking about that because it's pirates, but it's all primary <laughs> sources. And so that'll be fun to, to be talking about with people. And I'm starting to write, you know, I'm working on a couple of different projects and I have an idea of what they might be, but I haven't. I haven't fully made up my mind which one I'm going to go uh, with. Next. Okay. So we'll right. have to see. Because your bio says you're working on your next novel, so I just. Oh, I am working on it, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> All it right. could be there. Could there are a couple of lead candidates? There are a couple of candidates Ooh. right now. So, um, is are there any pirate stories among your lead candidates? Um, not at this point. One thing I'm thinking about is maybe a nice, really fun, gilded age, like meaty society novel. I've been thinking about, you know, having spent enough time thinking about Astor and Vanderbilt, um, that I think it could be interesting to do kind of a bonfire of the vanities, but in the gilded age, you know, with like a few, like a few different, because one of the writers I really admire is Edith Wharton, but Edith Wharton was very hidebound in her class perspective and so i think it would be kind of fascinating to try to do a wharton-esque type novel and but in which the you know workers are also in 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 a household are also um as important narratively and and character wise as as the well-off people would be so kind of like um downton abbey in a way Yeah. yeah well yeah only yeah I mean, the, the working, the, the servants there were quite important too. You know, a That's lot true. of the storylines were, were about that. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Now, that time, that period of time wasn't the, the occult and kind of spiritualism was definitely a big thing. It, it was. I've, I've already done a spiritualism novel. Um, that was The House of Velvet and Glass. So I'm feeling like this one would be the one I'm kind of imagining would be more of a social novel and less of a magical realist novel. Okay. Um, At this juncture. So when you, um, you know, left your, uh, your doctorate program and turned Mm -hmm. to writing uh, popular historical novels. Making things up. Making things up. Yes. Um, did you have any difficulty finding a publisher? I was very fortunate. Um, I, I was quite lucky that I found an agent pretty early on, and um, and she was able to place Physic Book of Deliverance Day in with a publisher. So I was I was preternaturally fortunate, I think, which mm. was nice. Well, you know, I got to say, in talking to, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of writers over the years, so I think I, mm-hmm. I haven't numbered them yet, but I, 
think I've done over 600 episodes of this show. Great, Scott. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, we started in 2006, you know, live on the radio. Wow. Yeah. And oh, okay. uh, so you add, uh, you do it long enough, the numbers start to add up. They do. They do. <laughs> and, you know, I've had quite a few people who, you know, went through the normal struggles to get published and so forth. But there's mm-hmm. a lot that actually are like you, where you sort of, where there, there wasn't a lot of struggle to it. And I, and I think that one way or the other, talent will event, talent and perseverance will out. You will, if, if you're, if your writing skills are where they should be. And a lot of people, you know, have a number of failed novels before they are successful. Your failed sure. novel came a little later, but you know, Mm-hmm. I'm sure it was part of developing your skills as a writer. And mm-hmm. if you, so if you, if you develop the skill, do the work to develop the skill, stick with it and tell a story mm-hmm. that people want to hear, you will find a, you will find a place for it. Yeah. Well, we also live in a moment where, you know, so many people who are passionate about telling stories are able to find a way to do that. Right. You know, whether it's, whether it's through, you know, self-publishing or hybrid publishing or, or um, you know, fan fiction or, you know, there's so many different ways that people feel incredibly moved and motivated to tell stories. And uh, it's, a, it's kind of an exciting moment to live in like a flowering of different fiction possibilities. It is. And then the hard part is, as readers, how do we decide mm-hmm. what to read? There's so I know. much. I know. So much available. An embarrassment of riches. An embarrassment of riches for sure. Sure. So, well, a true account, Hana Matsuri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself, a novel by Catherine Howe. It's a, f- it's fun to read. We didn't really get into the 19, what is it 1920s timeline? No, much? it's, it's, it's 29 turning 1930. Okay. Yeah. We, Do you we have any talk about Marion <laughs> Do you, anything you want to say about that before we run out of time? Um, just that it is, uh, it's, it's, it's the treasure hunt part of the story. You can't have a pirate novel and not have a treasure uh, hunt. And so we definitely have a treasure hunt. Very good. Very good. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us here today on Writer's Voices. Thank you for inviting me. It was a real pleasure. And we always close with a quote. And whenever I can find a quote that works from Mark Twain, I'm going to use it. So this oh, is as from, well you should. And this is from Life on the Mississippi. Now and then we had a hope that if we lived and were good, God would permit us to be pirates. <laughs> That's a great quote. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And see you all next week on Writer's Places. <laughs>